This is Art Moves. So let me tell you a story. You know, oftentimes I just sort of muse and I think about, especially as I've gotten older, what were those defining moment kinds of experiences that I've had? And defining moment is an interesting way to look at it, but that's exactly how I look at it. And I think about when I was in high school, it was Oliver Ames High School in southeastern Massachusetts. And this was in the early 70s when the Black Power movement was really kicking up and all of that. And my father had gotten a job in Massachusetts in Polaroid, at Polaroid. So we had to move from Louisville, Kentucky, where we lived in the, on the West End, which was African-American and all the great things that that culture brings, to a location where my sister and I and another African-American girl were the only black girls in the entire high school. And I used to think about how much on the outside I felt, how much I resisted any form of happiness in a situation like that, because on a lot of levels, I wasn't quite ready for that kind of diversity. Mm-hmm. And what happened was I would be in this U.S. history class, which was beneath my intellect, but it met at a time when I needed to take U.S. history. And I was always the spokesperson when we talked about anything related to African-Americans, especially slavery. And I remember this one white boy said, well, the reason that black people were, if if you weren't inferior, then uh, why were you slaves? And, you know, that kind of comment, oh, I was like, "Mm." you know, so I'd end up just kind of getting into this back and forth. And at one point he got really frustrated. He says, you know, something, I'm going to kick your blank (laughs) when you leave this, you know, when you leave. And another friend of mine, which was another white guy, says, if you lay a hand on her, I'm going to kick your blank. So that kind of defines my relationship in a lot of ways, meaning I know there's good people and I know there's people that aren't as awake. So I'm Tony Williams. And this is Elikas Lansky. And this is Art Moves. Find some art that moves you and share it. We are delighted to be talking about diversity in the arts with someone that I have really grown to appreciate because of her authenticity and her enlightenment. And that is Dr. Toby Stein. And she is the, a professor emerita of theater and also a sociologist. And she was at Brooklyn College. And she's written this wonderful book. Now, Toby, if you could just let the viewers know what the book it is that you you wrote. The book is called Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Performing Arts Workforce. And it examines the sociological and psychological reasons for the over-representation of white people in the performing arts arts workplace. Workforce, And I have to say that to be able to tackle that subject is very fearless of you. And it's so interesting to have you as a, a voice for this, because oftentimes, if it was not someone like you, perhaps people might not listen. But be that as it may, why don't we talk about, I think to set the context, let's talk about what it means to be what white fragility is. Well, white fragility was coined by Robin D'Angelo, who wrote a book by the same name and earlier an article by the same name. And it's when white privilege is questioned or threatened. I will use myself as an example. So when my power when my privilege is questioned, I will assume a defensive posture. And these are the kinds of expressions that come out of someone with white fragility. We want to hire a quality candidate. Yeah, that's our qu- yeah, qualified, as if, yes, code, so to speak. Code, yes. absolutely. Mm-hmm. We've looked for someone of color but we can't find anyone. <laughs> this, is, this is the myth of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have tried, 
we did hire someone of color, but it didn't work out. So these are all outrageous, racist comments covered in white fragility, which is the defensive posture. Understood. So what gets rather challenging, though, is when you're looking at cultural institutions where I believe the workforce is one where there are very few people of color that are actually employed by cultural institutions, it really uh, informs a way of thinking that does not improve upon the situation. Could you care to comment? Yeah, and also particularly in positions of power, too. Exactly. Like senior management and president mm-hmm. something like that. Well, when you look at boards of directors, um, 80% or 84% of board members are people of color. 91% of board chairs, uh, sorry, 84. Well, yes, that's okay. just the opposite. That's okay. It's that's not okay. on the test. Right. Right. That's what I want it to be. Okay. 84% uh, of board members a nonprofit board members are white. 91% of board chairs are white. 90% of executives are white. Um, you see a pattern here. And when you go to audiences of performing arts organizations, over 80% of audiences for performing arts uh, performances are also white. So wouldn't that be what drives that? that situation. Absolutely. The, um, the economic imperative that the money uh, which comes from white audiences, which comes from white funders, foundations, it's, it's there to support primarily white European-based performance. How do, how do we disrupt something like that? Because it's sounds as though it is economically driven and that a shift in that at least where we are now could be very difficult to make now when 2045 comes and we're looking at a my uh, people of color being the the majority so to speak you know i'm just wondering how do we uh disrupt something like that if you're if you're if your funders or your patrons are people that have a certain artistic sensibility and a way of viewing the world, and they're the ones writing the check. How, do, how does that get disrupted? It has to get disrupted from the very top of the organization, where the boards of directors of funding organizations, which are nonprofits, by the way, mm-hmm. they're there to serve a public, the public interest, which embraces all. Um, when they start to dismantle all of the procedures and processes and systems of exclusion that they've created. When they start to bring people of color with lived experience in the community onto the boards of directors, onto the staff, hire an executive recruiter with a track record in placing people of color on boards of directors and on staff, when they, when they begin to embrace cultural pluralism as a core value, only then will they begin to recruit and honor people of color as thought leaders in the performing arts workforce. So it starts with the board, yes? It's absolutely. Because right, that's where the money is. <laughs> absolutely. All right, just like with museums, it's really the major collectors who give the major donations to the museum that sort of run the show, if you will. used to be more totally the domain of curators, but less so now. So are we talking about diversity training at the board level? Because I sometimes wonder, these seem like one-shot deals, meaning we're talking about a person's lived experience. We're talking about conditioned mindsets. How in the world do we, it's almost as though a generation's just got to go on and and perhaps we can really start to inform those generations coming behind it. I'm just wondering, what, what, what's what's the cure for lack of a well, better word? Well, you started, <laughs> you know, you started with uh, Tony with what is white fragility, mm-hmm. and so the boards have to 
come to a unanimous decision that they have it. They mm-hmm. can't be in denial. They have it. <laughs> Having lived in this society and being exposed to the systemic and institutional racism that we all have uh, internalized within us, that it's in order to combat anti-racism, f- the first thing is just acceptance that it's real, that, 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 it's, that it's in us. And so once that happens, then it's important to bring in a group of multicultural trainers to help people start to deal and face their white fragility and to transform it into anti-racist action. I love what you're saying, and I totally agree with it. I just, you know, sitting here thinking, like, great, so here we have the, you know, white patriarchy mm-hmm. that is doing this incredibly murderous power play to destroy other people's lives just so they can protect the franchise of the rich. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like speaking, speaking like, you know, mm-hmm. Urdu to them. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> but I think, I think in some ways to sit here and think, yeah, I think, I think that what would really change it as a dynamic would be a major shift, generational shift, maybe four, five, six generations from now, where you have a lot more people of color who are in a position of power to make it from you the said power four, level. four, five, or six generations. You know how many years that is? No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's... that's yeah, a, but yeah. what I'm saying is like it's mm-hmm. not like... Mm-hmm. It's a slow burn because... Yeah, you're talking about the conditioned mindset, the fact that people think in particular kinds of ways, right? It, it's not just a conditional mindset because good luck with that. You, mm-hmm. know, you can tell right. some guy who comes from like, I don't know where... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, some rich neighborhood in Michigan, some wealthy guy come out of the car companies or something mm-hmm. that, you know, that he's, has white fragility. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. Even though I agree with the philosophy, I, I told you, you're right. It's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the coin is that you have these institutions that desperately need this audiences because multicultural generations mm-hmm. and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, the funders are saying they need to be more diverse, but there's a structural fault. And the structural fault is at the senior level and at the board level. It's not the worst. It's you know, it's a tiny percentage of it. But to shift them is like you know, it'd be a challenge to shift them. And the only way to shift them is that there be has to be a higher percentage of people in that wealth class that is on those boards that can influence it from the inside and have those level of conversations. The interesting thing is, though, white fragility is very insidious, as I see it, because I know and hidden too. Right? It's very insidious because yeah. the, well, the, the there, there's there's this notion that if you are a progressive liberal, how in the world can I be? Uh, how can I be challenged with this? Well, Meaning, they're lying to I've, themselves. I've I'm been sorry. on boards <laughs> where I've heard words like "I am not a racist" and "I'm just not." I am colorblind. And you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but that is a lot of what, the, not a lot. That is some of the thinking. What I find is there are those on boards that may have interracial, like their their grandkids might be biracial, you know, or they 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 themselves may be with a partner that is of another race, and I see that as a window of opportunity, but but but. That's a that's a big step, so to speak. Meaning, you know, you can't just say everybody's going to marry each other, and then that's how it's all going to be. And so, when it comes to thinking about how to change this, what are some of the structural aspects of this that we can perhaps look at or influence? In the meantime, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, here's I had to get off my soapbox, Toby. <laughs> Here's some more. more. She got the step by step. (laughs) Well, here are some more statistics that I think are relevant here. Um, So I explored the workforce, Mm and 80% of jobs are found through informal networks. An organization did a study and found that 91% of white Americans' social networks are white. And another study, 62% of the white people that were studied believe they have more in common with people who are white. So 
Bottom line, friendship circles are segregated by race and homogeneous white industry networks are significant cultural barriers when we're talking about bringing more uh, people of color into these uh, organizations. So it really is critical that tr multicultural training take place, long-term multicultural training, not just one day or there are some uh, corporations recently in the news, you know, they do a day of multicultural training. <laughs> they say, oh, we did it. A little booths and food. <laughs> mm -hmm, we did it, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's not <laughs> enough because mm -hmm. uh, we've all been socialized to have bias mm -hmm. when oh. it comes to race. Mm hmm when it comes to gender, when it comes to age. I mean, we've all been socialized to believe certain things. And to undo racism, it's a lifetime commitment. Yeah, I think it's lifetime. Right. E even that story that I told earlier, when I repeat it, I still get like, <clears throat> even though I don't think I'm that person today, you know, I'm the past from, that. The one from school. Yeah, right? but there's still a little bit of, <clears throat> I don't trust, <clears throat> you know, how old were and you? I was it, it was traumatic. 16. It was mm -hmm. a traumatic experience. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And people of it color It was traumatic, I guess. People of oh. color that I interviewed mm -hmm. for my book talked about the trauma, the everyday trauma that they experience in society, at work, outside, going through the subway, going to a restaurant hailing a cab. Is it a trauma? See, I see it as a microaggression. Well, yeah. But and I don't see that wait, as a trauma. Like yeah. I'm but ripping up my psyche. There's people but, being but arrested right, for there this. Are people, right, but right. Tony, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sitting in her own lawn over chair. Over time, mm -hmm. these pinpricks, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these microaggressions and macroaggressions as well, they build and build and build. And it's been studied. It affects You're absolutely health. correct. Yes. It affects mm -hmm. wellness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It affects confidence. It felt it affects self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And it's a societal sickness, racism. You it's are so correct. And it starts at three years old. That's another study that's been done. That's interesting when you By start the time you're three, you're already exposed through what your parents are saying, what your peers are saying, when you're going to daycare how kids separate themselves and think, white kids think they're uh, superior and the teachers are white and they unknowingly perhaps reinforce this or knowingly, it could be, it could be either. It could be explicit or implicit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, and um, so it's important to know that this illness this cancer, this, this societal illness, absolutely, is, well, is right. there, right. is there right. from the beginning of one's life, and it continues to be reinforced through our behaviors and attitudes and practices. Which is an interesting age, because that's the age at which you create an identity for yourself. That's right. right. And that's, that's the right. story you believe about who you are. And I also think so much of it comes from your home, too. You know, well, I came from a TV. home where neither one of my parents ever bought it you to me on a lot of levels you have to agree with the way someone feels about you i disagree you were lucky i was yes you're really lucky. But, you know but i had kind of a, a i don't want to say a mixed heritage but it looked mixed because i had very light-skinned people in my family and dark-skinned people and they were very conscious you know and very success driven meaning driven and conscious and by conscious i mean Again, I, I, I need to see what you're bringing to me. You know, I need to see that. And we did see it. You know, we were taught to see it and then to reject it, to just out and out reject it. So as a result, I feel that it made me strong. But there's a strong element also yeah. there, but for the grace of God, because you couldn't have different parents in different environments. Absolutely. So that's why you were lucky. Absolutely. And it's not typical. Would you it say was, or no? It was tip. It was Tickle more so your... amongst my peers, you know, right, who we okay, socialized who yeah, with, okay. who we were around. 
that we were going to be trailblazers, trendsetters. And I just was blessed, too. You know, at the end um, of the day, as I think about it, saying, I didn't. Yeah. Yes, I didn't yeah. come from both of my parents were college educated and beyond. They had certain aspirations. But that, all of that being said, what can government do to try to level this playing field? So organizations of color only in the arts only receive 4% of foundation funding, which is in in of itself inequitable. And I, I believe that the government must require its grantees to deliver what I call an ADEI centered plan with measurable results that must be public and put on the website. What does ADID stand for, please? Access, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So as an organization, what am I doing with my board, my staff, my programming? What am I doing to build equitable relationships with my communities? How do we build, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that because that's, that's I was reading a vision statement and one of the questions the vision in the vision statement it said build equitable and one of the board members came back and says well how do you do that don't you foster that how do you do that this is great how do you do that the community must be at the center of leading the process not the white organization hmm. too many times the white organization hmm. says yeah, we want a partnership because we got a grant and we, we need to mm -hmm. increase diversity. And so we're going to uh, use the organization of color to help us, help us build a plan. Right, use. They actually say yeah. that word. And um, is, that an is that an equitable partnership? Of course not. Mm -hmm. And organizations of color resent being used. There was a um, primarily white organization that got funding to do um, an equitable partnership and they, they told, you know, they got the money. They got the money. Mm -hmm. The organization of color was then brought in as a partner and was actually named in the grant proposal hmm. and they knew nothing about it. I mean, it, it's colonialism. Yes, yes. So um, it's, it's very important that funders be sensitive to what they're funding, who they're funding, and that communities of color are leading the, are leading the equitable process, the racially equitable process, and not the white organization. How does that shift occur when the white organization may have more credibility and have better connections and be able to leverage? My question would be credibility among whom? The people making, the decision makers. So the funder? Mm -hmm. I think the funding organization, and there, many funding organizations are now taking a look at how they make decisions and and the part racism plays. Mm -hmm. And um, what's starting to happen in some, some of the funding organizations is they're recruiting people in the community to come and as employees, at, as board members, so that they don't see these partnerships from a white lens mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and from a white fragility lens and mm -hmm. from a privileged lens and that they're... Um, their colleagues of color, the leaders of color in their organization, are really creating the bonds with the community and the funding mm -hmm. choices. And that shift is starting to happen, which is really oh, encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I mean, I'm sitting here and say, okay, if you're, not say I'm them, but you say if you're like a board like that, what's the rationale for doing it aside from the fact that? The funding says you sh should, or the government says you should, and, and that, but some government, not ours, but. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, uh, it all sounds great on paper, you know, you know, how does, how does, do you know what I mean? It's like, why would, how would you convince a board who. 
doesn't believe and believe they have right fragility to say, okay, let's not make this just lip service. Let's really do this authentically. And then the other question is also is like, okay, if this is built upon networks, you know, how do how do people of color get into those networks and power their own networks? I think that's also one of the work we're trying to do with the Brooklyn Arts Council for the mentoring program, right. which you know Toby and I was part of that. Mm-hmm. Is like you know, because it's not just networking. It's like what is a network and how do you build it and how do you empower it and how do you use the people in the network to, you know, help you be self empowered for other things. Well, it's like twelve questions in one. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah that was a me, lot. That was a lot. He was he was he was in a train of thought right yeah, there. Yeah, I'm busy over here. <laughs> okay, so I I think I'll, I'll just start with the fact that. We know for a fact that our society will be a majority people of color society. We're scared the crap out of those guys. <laughs> and people, it's true. predominantly mm-hmm. white desperate. organizations who don't reflect our country's demographics, who don't speak to as many people as possible, who don't create value by representing and including a multiplicity of cultural voices in their work and workforce will have a smaller share of the performing arts marketplace. Hmm. They just will. Right. They're not relevant. Right. They will become obsolete. And whether they want to face that or not, it's real. It's happening. (laughs) Perhaps, too, this will be happening organically as we're looking at so many mixed race children and families. I mean, on television, for goodness sake, the commercials that I see now, I never would have seen 20 years ago. It seems like everybody is mixed race or mixed gender, whatever whatever that is, you know. So it, I have confidence that this will shift. But right now where we have a pain point, how, do, how would you suggest that people of color talk to those in power because around this, or is, how, how do you open the conversation without looking as though you're complaining or uh, you're a threat, you're angry, you know, all of these um, barriers to being able to really engage in an authentic conversation? I think it's difficult. It sure is. Unless (laughs) the organization adopts a cultural core value of cultural pluralism, which is respect and high regard for difference. And unless that's a core value, and not only is it said but it's acted upon, then people of color in a predominantly white organization will not be seen as authentic thought leaders. So when words are aligned with action, things can change. Um, There are arts organizations, the the Oregon uh, Shakespeare Festival, Racial equity, human rights, and dignity is explicit in every single thing that they do. So it's, it's in every policy, the board, the staff, mission the statement? programming. Is, that, a, is it in the mission statement too? Or? It absolutely. Yeah, it yes, it's, it's, it's a core value. And, and by the way, this can be in a mission statement, but not acted upon. No, of course, yeah. But... People in an organization like this, if inequity is spotted, people are, this again is the value. Right. Call it out. I'm not comfortable. I don't know. This is how this comment makes me feel. Sometimes you can look like you're just a complainer or a crybaby. Because I was thinking about something that I was at recently and the, the, leader was talking about people of color as if it was a we they kind of a thing you know how does one deal with meaning how how do you bring that into someone's consciousness that it's not we they it's us it's us it's us meaning what does that take 
we talked about diversity training and we talked a bit about, you know, your home life, but I guess it's, it's, I might just be making a comment. And, it's, you know. No, it, it's, you're so right, Tony. I think what has to happen is as it's been done in the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, it's not just about the training. It's about acting upon it's, the training right. and measuring the outcomes and publicly stating for all to see what's changing and for that to be discussed in every meeting, in every policy, in every decision. And it starts from the top. So who's doing it well in terms of the performing arts organizations that you would say that we get, you know, a grade? Is anybody getting an A grade? Yeah, the Oregon okay. Shakespeare Festival. That's what Festival. she just mentioned, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying there are other right. ones. That's one. There's mm-hmm. other other ones that you could say, oh yeah, those guys too. There are organizations that are, um, they're trying hard, and mm-hmm. and I give them a lot of credit. The public theater in New York mm-hmm. is among them, mm-hmm. where there's absolutely an effort. Um, there's a plan, there's a cultural equity plan in place, and everybody knows from the HR person to how in- interns, uh, interns, sorry, interns are selected, um, because that's another thing. Interns, most, most interns are paid so little, and that's an economic barrier for right, getting well, into yes. this elite field, right? Right. And so, um, and if you look at, at uh, students getting their bachelor's degrees in the arts, the majority are white. If you look at the curriculum in arts programs, the curriculum is not a responsive curriculum where students of color see their cultures reflected in the curriculum. So it's really an exclusionary <laughs> no, I'm listening at it because I was about to ask you about this pipeline because in order to have arts workers, you've got to start early. And oftentimes, you know, when people think of the arts, especially people who are trying to be economically sustainable, this isn't something that they would, arts management in particular, isn't something that might be on their radar. Being a curator isn't something that they they may have even been exposed to or understand because there is something about art that feels like leisure. You know, it feels like leisure. It feels like wreck. So how do we start to inform, how, how do we make that shift? Because that's a big one because it's economic. And when and where? Right, right, and that's and that's part of what that to me that's a lot of what's driving this. Is if you come from an under-resourced family, and you're a, a smart kid, you might look at becoming a doctor or a lawyer or something that seems a lot safer than necessarily going into arts management when you're not going to get paid a heck of a lot of money and you're going to be relying on your parents to help you foot the bill. You know, so how do we just how do we create a, a pipeline that is sustainable? It's a great question. It's, it's about being intentional about inclusion and equity because you're absolutely right. When you take a look at the studies, 60% of Latinx and African-American students grow up in high-poverty school districts as compared to 18% of white students. And high-poverty school districts are less likely to have access Good art programs, and it's not going to have it. That's the first thing on the chopping block. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They won't have access to art programs or after-school programs or mentors of color and private instruction. And, you know, not having an art program, because the more I'm learning about how important art is, just in terms of development of your brain, that puts you really behind the eight ball. You know, and that's something that I'm, I'm hoping that shows like this really can shine a light on. That if you are not exposed to the arts, there's so much that you're really losing. And it, and it causes you to, yeah, you, you don't develop in the same rate. Yes, there's some, you know, we all know STEM is for science and there's something called STEAM. 
And we want something Which called asks, stream. Remember, Eli? Stream. 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 I forgot stream. what the R was. Uh, reading. <laughs> oh, reading. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's just. Right. There's steam. Yeah, we need to read it. Right, right. Keep adding. Keep right. adding. Right. But there's a thing in some ways it's not only just, I mean, yes, it's true, like having greater awareness in the, in the centers of power, if you will, in performing arts. But don't you think then on the grassroots level, there needs to be some kind of infrastructure change? I mean, not just through schools or maybe through libraries or churches or some other place to get access. And in some ways, I would submit that this is one of the other missions that Brooklyn Art Council, I think, should take on, not just have an audience and artists, but... So you know, mm -hmm. uh, here's another statistic. So the cultural industry in this country generates $166 billion a year. And everyone needs to have a piece of that. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to have a piece of that. So it's, it's about the, dis the inequitable distribution of money it's about inequity in terms of money being given to schools. It's about the recruitment of students of color in arts programming in college and universities. It's about the internships. It's about the networks that are homogeneously white. And there's a white fragility and like, why do well, I need to go outside of my own networks? I'm perfectly comfortable being where I am. Who's saying this? White people. Oh, white people. Yes, yes, yes. Because, I mean, in <laughs> some ways you could say this for the people who are not in network. network. They might not even have a con they might not be conscious of the fact that they have a network. No? I think, again, all of this consciousness needs to come up in radically uh, transforming primarily white organizations, so that they are dealing with their white, white fragility and uh, unconscious bias. And that takes a commitment of money and budget and saying, we're going to transform our organization. We're going to be in this for the long term. We're when we hire, we're going to have inclusive language in our job announcements that and Again, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival said, we will continue, they put this publicly, we will continue looking until we have found a person from one of these areas because you're not allowed to say in, in hiring, you're not allowed to uh, be biased about hiring. But they included everyone in who they were looking for. It was amazing. I've never and, seen a job description like that. And I would say that they would still need to check themselves. Because you know what happens with organizations that are going to be really intentional? There's a certain righteousness that occurs. You know, we're going we're gonna to do this and we're going to be. But, but I applaud it. I applaud it because I think that it's a start. You know, now I really, though, want to talk <laughs> to you now, Toby, <laughs> about your passion for this space. Because you are really a pioneer. You're speaking truth to power. You're, you're, you're lifting your voice. You're, you're, you're an advocate. What, what, what has driven you this direction? Why, why, where is the passion coming from? And can we get some of your blood and shoot it in everybody else's rat? <laughs> <laughs> is there a way to inoculate everybody so they can But But what's driving it? Well... The town I grew up in, I will tell you, was primarily white, and it was in that town that I have that I met my closest friends who are still in my life today. It was a whole family. They had fled Cuba when Castro took over. They had fled communism, and they were sponsored in our. They left their entire lives behind, everything they had, their home, their belongings everything. They came to the United States with nothing. Our towns, uh, one of the churches in our town uh, supported them, helped, helped the parents uh, become employed. And I learned their stories, which were really different from the stories of the other kids in town. And I connected with them. I loved I loved them, mm -hmm. like, like intensely. And I believe that 
their stories of oppression have influenced me, my interests, and my, my identity. And as I grew up, I continued to embrace mentors in my life, mentors of color who also shared their backgrounds with me and some of the things they were going through. And I shared with one person in particular, and you know the story, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was having problems with uh, a male boss and very sexist guy, and he was making my life miserable. And I would get together with my mentor and he would help me understand what I needed to go, to, how I needed to get through it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he shared his stories of discrimination with me. And they were powerful stories. And so I dedicate a lot of my work to him and his love for me and his memory. Oh, that's fabulous. I, what I'm hearing, though, and this is something Eli and I have discussed from time to time, it has to do with vulnerability, right? Oh, the power of vulnerability. Yeah, the yeah. power of vulnerability. And <clears throat> listening to this conversation. Talk and about, talking about Bree Brown. Yeah, so, so much of what blocks us in a lot of ways is this feeling of vulnerability. You know, as an African-American woman, I don't. I learned it was best not to have these kinds of conversations, especially at the workplace, because I need to maintain, you know? It's best not to talk, to have, you, you just, it, it was not a good place. It was not a safe place. May, perhaps reprisal, perhaps retaliation, whatever those things are. And I think that there's the same concern on the other side, you know, from a power dynamic where it's, well, if I, how, how am I to be, with this person. And so can you talk, talk about that? Because if we could just be vulnerable, if there's an opportunity to have the genuine discussions without leaving and say, did I just say that? Oh, damn, why did I say that? You know, sometimes you, you know, because you, you don't know who you can trust. Yeah. You know, and that's the other piece, the power of trust. <laughs> you know, because to move past this, it takes each of us individually. The work has to be done here. It has to start with you. So could you comment on that? That's, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. That's a big question. I feel um, my experiences in my life dealing with my friends, later my mentors, and their oppression and, ex and sharing that with me helped. I identified with that because I also had my own uh, relationship with with oppression being Jewish absolutely right <clears throat> and that openness and willingness to share each other's experiences that's what I think brings people together absolutely and, and to be and be to be and lie together in trust to be able to not be afraid that what you say will be misunderstood be, yes yes because that's where it lies it's like yes is what i'm getting ready to say going to be misunderstood and this often happens in the workplace when you start to discuss politics and you know what an election means to me might not be what it means to a young white millennial male it might not it might not mean the same thing and i've had those kinds of discussions but very carefully because you you because it's not necessarily a safe environment. Right. And that's, you're right. That's, mm -hmm. I agree with you. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Do you feel safe with this other person? Do you feel safe in the space? Right. Mm -hmm. Do you feel excluded from the space, from the conversation? Right. Um, or are you embraced? Absolutely. For your perspective? And when your perspective is different, that's when, it, then that's when you know if you're, you know right away if you're safe. If you, if you feel differently, it's like, can I be me in this mm -hmm. space? Mm -hmm. Or I, will, will I be misunderstood? Will, will I be rejected? So what are you thinking, Eli? See you sitting there. No, I, I, you know, I'm sitting here and thinking, yeah. There's also an element of looking good, too. It's another dynamic to mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm not going to look bad. And I think, you know, I think there's also an element in society of these myths of what vulnerability and surrender really means. You know, it's connected too often with weakness, which it's not really. I think that's one of the things that was pointed out in the Brie Brown, I think that's her name, mm-hmm. who was this amazing woman, great TED talk about shame and vulnerability and that uh, there's a real power to it. You know, this is what I think about. But, you know, it's like... Seeing like a workspace, how do you get how do you get people to appreciate that? And it's, the dynamics are complicated too, especially in larger larger organizations. And I think the solutions are hard because there's still this view that affirmative action was one of the greatest ills of society. You know, I I call myself coming up in the sweet spot. Maybe that's why I'm not as traumatized because I was well positioned to take advantage of all that that opened up, the doors that opened up for me. But now I look at it and it's very, very different, you know. So the idea of solutions are really difficult because you'd have to be talking about a redistribution of wealth. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's about sharing power. Mm-hmm. It's about sharing funding. It's about stepping back and um, Antonio Kyler said this in the beginning of my book. The uh, Wow, and what a preface. I don't know if it was the intro or the preface, but I, I almost felt like I didn't even have to go further in a weird way. He yes. just nailed everything. <laughs> yes. Our, our, he, he mentioned internships and he mentioned... Um, are white students willing to step back? No. <laughs> well, that's the other part of it, which no, is no, like... No, no, no. You know, See, that's look, the problem. Right. I mean, they no. I can't see that ever. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep going. But you, like you say, you know, look at these guys who are on the boards of Performing Arts Center. Are they willing? No. Are they willing? No. Because no. that's equity. No. That's equity. But, but, but mm, you know, and that's where equity and capitalism really lock horns, you know, because on a, I can I can understand that point of view. But they don't, I, I don't want promote it. But I can understand. You think, well, this is my opportunity. What about my life? I mean, you know, those are the kinds of conversations. Right, people and that's have. capitalism, and that, and and feeling I I I me me mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. is what matters instead of taking a look at our entire society and how we make it better. Well, Nicole Hannah-Jones was talking about in her 1619 project how African Americans have perfected the democracy because of the way we think around the society and the common good, especially African American women. So that was... I agree. Yes. I agree. Yes, yes. But it's the idea of what, what it all takes and the shift in consciousness that has to occur See, I don't see it that way. Okay, please I'm express. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with the fundamentally and philosophically. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. But you look at who these guys are and these people who are on these boards, people in positions of power. They don't. They don't want any of this stuff. They want to keep their Ferraris and their oh, mansions. Oh, well, that's kind of what I'm. Yes, you know, yes. and their cocktails, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they don't care about. And that's equity. kind of what we were saying. And it's they're willing the, to do anything. <laughs> they're willing to destroy mm-hmm. people's lives, the healthcare, everything, just to be able to maintain that. Mm-hmm. So to have these guys, you know, talk about white fragility. Good luck. With no, that. it's not going to happen. No, no th- I think yeah. this is why I say it's it's more. But it's more, I I disagree with you okay. because um, the ch- the change in demographics. Yes, it's that's something. Push that then, right that, that's out the, way. the door. That's yes, the way. well, that, I was and, getting to that. And yeah. forty and forty-four percent of the millennials are people of color, and oh. even more so, oh. I guess, in Generation Z. But and that was they, the point. That was they're the point. Doing really well. That was the point I was getting to. That's why I say, <laughs> in some ways, it's a generational, almost like seismic shift from the ground up, not from the top down. And I but believe, the power comes from the outside in. I believe. Um, they will push e- equity forward, and I already see it happening. But it has to happen politically, socially, and economically. And the economic piece? Yeah, meaning if we, you know, I, I think of the under-resourced communities and their ability to be able to access wealth. You know, their ability to be able to access a home, 
their which, which in in many respects still defines how wealthy you're going to be. Their ability to access sustainable employment, you know, their ability to get a mortgage that's not. St we're still dealing with that. You know, a, a friend of mine named Sean Rochester wrote a book called The Black Tax. It's really interesting because it talks about how much more under-resourced people have to pay for things. See, so all of that is, is uh, it's multi-layered, this whole oppression thing. I agree. <laughs> so so I, have, I hear what you're saying, Toby. I'm just saying that, and I agree with you to a certain extent that it's like, you know, it's not, I'm not counting on the people, in the, the white people in power to have an epiphany, unless it's driven by market or cultural or social forces where it becomes somewhat of an inevitability and a question of relevancy and survival. See, but that's mm -hmm. not something that they're gonna wake up one day and say, oh yeah, we should do this. Now, mm -mm. it may be in some progressive, enlightened organization that happens, but you know, that's why I, that's why I think, and I may be wrong, is that we're talking generational. So you're talking mm -hmm. 2020, 2045, and you know, this is why it's, this stuff scares the bejesus about these guys, and that's why they're gerrymandering, and that's why <laughs> they're taking the power away from governors, and that's why they're, cheating and lying about stuff. They're willing to throw the Constitution and the rule of law <laughs> under the it. bus. It's like, you know. Grief. That's the truth. The desperate. That. Yeah. It's a desperation, yeah. right? Yeah. And the desperation is because. It's before the dawn. Well, because there's this tidal <laughs> wave. There's a tidal wave. <laughs> right? But I, I believe. Because the, that's the trend. I believe the resistance and the resilience of people of color will change the society. And I see it happening now, and that's, that's mm -hmm. I'm extremely hopeful. I oh, I love that. Yeah. And if there's one thing that you would want, because we're pressing up against time, that you would want a reader to take from your book, what would that be? The one thing. Yeah. And if you can, if you can distill it to one thing. <laughs> In 10 words or less. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. So <laughs> that words have to be aligned with action. Excellent. Without action, I mean, there are, there are several uh, scholars talking about this now, scholars of color. It's like diversity, equity, inclusions. Speak now, is right? white. Yes, yeah, let's speak. It's, we, you know, that's a white thing. <laughs> we mm -hmm. want dignity. Mm. Racial mm. justice. Mm -hmm. Dignity. Show us. Don't just talk about. Interrogate your own stuff. Interrogate your own white fragility. And then we'll talk to you. You know, Toby, you're just a gem. And I am so happy that we've had the opportunity to talk to you. You're inspiring, authentic, and... Passionate. We just want to have yeah. you back yeah, on... Amen. on Art moves. Thank you. So thank you so much thank for joining. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Eli. Mm -hmm. yes. Produced in partnership with Schneps Media and the Brooklyn Arts Council. Find some art that moves you and share it.